uh, and so the artists have often been our silence witnesses in time to human suffering and struggling and error. Uh, Reparations is like the F-bomb. And I say that, you know, when you say <laughs> the F-bomb on me. So when you, when you drop the R-word, reparations, it, it does what the F-bomb is like. It, it quiets the room. Have you noticed you know, that? Like you I can say, be places with the most, you know. Every, everything comes full circle soon or later. And that's why we got to keep fighting. We got to keep pushing. Before we begin, it's important to note that this podcast includes descriptions of violence. It may not be appropriate for everyone, especially younger listeners. When someone sits, sips, and reflects over a cup of tea, there is a space to ask questions about one's relationship to the world. A world that is filled with dehumanization, war, and destruction. A world that is filled with moments of beauty, love, and resistance. Hello, I'm Aaron Hughes. And I'm Amber Ginsberg. And this is Remaking the Exceptional, a podcast that examines the local and international implications of state violence, while also uplifting acts of creative resistance. Through the voices of torture survivors and activists, we highlight the connections between policing and incarceration in Chicago and the human rights violations of the global war on terror. Aaron and I worked with sound designer Nate Sandberg to collage individual interviews with Anthony Holmes, Mozambique, Kilroy Watkins, Mohamedou Oudslahi, Ronnie Kitchen, Sabri Al-Karashi, Latanya Jennifer Sublet, and Mansoor Adafi into one imagined tea gathering. This podcast invites you into this imagined conversation that never happened between Guantanamo torture survivors and Chicago police torture survivors. The setting for the first episode, Tea, Tenderness, and Torture, is inside Badr Ahmed's drawing of a table set for tea with no one there. Badr made the painting in Guantanamo, where he is still extra-legally imprisoned. Badr has made many of these drawings of tea parties with no attendees. We have been told that Badr imagines filling these drawings with his friends and family. With this in mind, we have filled one of his drawings with this imagined gathering. We invite you to this conversation over tea and Botter's painting. Blue, yellow, brown, red, orange, green, and glints of white oil pastel fill the sheet of paper. Centered, There are three tea vessels, three cups, three saucers, one spoon, and one plate, on which sits what looks to be a delicious cake. This tea setting sits high on a table overlooking a cityscape that recedes into the distance. Buildings, streets, spires, and trees. At the horizon, a sea, a pier, and speckles of glistening sea foam. The tea vessels, arranged as if in conversation, initially appear as cobalt blue. But on closer inspection, with oranges, yellows, greens, and teals, are more like Van Gogh's night sky, 
all the colors reflected in the vessel's spouts, handles, and bodies. Uh, this is very easy. You can do it. So this is like green tea, you know, with mint. You just put the green tea and you put mint with it and then you boil water and then you pour it and then you let it sit for, let's say, 20, 30 minutes. And then, you know, when it brews, then you just drink it, you know. And it's very counterintuitive that when it's hot, you should drink hot things. At least that's the, the belief in this place. So it's, now it's very hot, I'm sweating everywhere, but I'm drinking very hot tea. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Muhammadu Al-Salahi. I was born in Mauritania, 1970. I don't know my exact birthday. And after 9-11, I was kidnapped and rendered to Jordan for eight months. After that, I was rendered to Bagra for a couple of weeks. And then I ended up in Guantanamo Bay, August 4th. Uh, 2002, where I spent more than 14 years. My name is Kilroy Watkins, and uh, I was recently released uh, from my sentence as of January 25th, 2019, after being incarcerated uh, for almost 30 years uh, and tortured by CPD uh, in January 1992. I am Masoro a former Guantanamo detainee. I was detained at Guantanamo for around 15 years and released without was charged. My name is Ronald Kitchen. I'm a member of the death row team, a group of guys who formed a group while we were on death row, uh, torture survivors. I spent uh, 13 years on death row, eight years in population, a total of 21 years. Yeah, um, my name is Mazen Beg. I'm a former prisoner of the United States of America, held at Guantanamo and Bagram for three years without charge or trial. So for people who do not know me, uh, my name is Latanya Jennifer Sublet. I am um, pretty much the only woman to come forward as a torture survivor from Chicago Police Department. أتكلم عن يعني أنا صبري القرشي. تونترز himself he said I'm صبري القرشي. He's Walid. He's born in Saudi Arabia. He's Yemeni citizen. He was sold to American in Pakistan and was and one shipped to Guantanamo where he spent 14 years. My name is Anthony Holmes. I'm a torture survivor from Burge, John Burge. Resting officer in my case, I spent some time in the penitentiary, 30 some odd years to be exact, for a crime I didn't do. But he got a confession out of me. He broke me, and like he did so many others. Under the direction of police commander and Vietnam veteran John Burge, the Chicago police tortured hundreds of predominantly black men between 1972 and 1991. Unfortunately, this legacy of violence does not end nor begin there. Burge likely learned how to and used torture while serving in the military at a prisoner of war camp in Vietnam. Bringing these techniques back to Chicago, 
the practice of torture was inherited by the broader Chicago Police Department and later transported to the U.S. military prison in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, by Navy Reserve Lieutenant and Chicago Police Officer Richard Zuli. As Angela Davis points out in the book Abolition Democracy, quote, Guantanamo is a technology of repression that the enemy is said to deserve. Military detention and facilities such as those at Guantanamo have been enabled by rapid developments of new technologies within domestic prison sites, end quote. The U.S. established the military prison at Guantanamo to intentionally avoid domestic and international law. Since its founding, it's been protested as a site of extra-legal imprisonment and torture. The intimacies between the techniques and technologies of local policing and global military action highlights that Guantanamo is not exceptional, but part of a connected lineage. I was subjected to uh, different kinds of abuses, i.e. torture. Mahamadou including sleep deprivation, sexual assault, and beating uh, until uh, damage was visited upon my body that is lasting to this day. I was forced to conf- confess to crimes the United States knows I hadn't done. He made us, you know, he tortured us, suffocated us, with plastic bags over our head, handcuffs, and uh, had a liquid box. Anthony. You know, he, he put wires on the, on the handcuffs around my ankles and my, my hands behind my back while they had the bag on my face. I bit through the first one, I couldn't bite, I couldn't bite through the second one, and that went on for like 20-some hours. Guantanamo, when they moved us there, they tried to strip us who we are as a human being, as Muslims, as the Arabs, as Yemenis. Mansour. When I arrived there, in that place, they strip us naked, they hose us, they shave us, they shave everything in our bodies. They take photos. We were beating, swallowing. And the first time I opened my eyes, in a cage, people around me, bold, beating, swollen faces. We all the same thing in orange jumpsuit, and uh, we were given numbers. They took everything from you. You are not allowed to talk, stand, to walk. You are not allowed even to talk to the guards. You are not allowed to talk to each other. They tried to take everything from you. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I'm going to take you back to, to, to Bagram. Mosem. We're not allowed to talk, not even allowed to open our mouths. If they hear us, they take us, drag us from where we're lying in our cells. Then a hood was placed over my head, an American soldier, one had his knee on my neck, and the other had the, his knee on, on you know, the, the lower part of my back. And I said, I cannot breathe. Literally, I said, I can't breathe. And he lifted the hood off my head so I could breathe a little bit. And I said, thank you, thank you. And he swore, he said, don't thank me, mother F. Don't take my kindness for weakness. And then they went on to, the American soldiers went on to strip me, beat me, punch me, spray me, shave me, and take apart my dignity as they did to the rest of the other, uh, um, the prisoners. So I walked into area two police station at the age of 19. Latanya, um, which is on the south side of Chicago. I had information about a crime. I was ignorant of the law in the sense of I had never had a parking ticket. I had never been suspended from school. I had never come face to face with a police officer other than 
in the store in passing, never. I walked into the police station maybe about 11 o'clock and I was there until maybe about one or two o'clock the next afternoon. Um, my mother waited for me downstairs the entire time. I was in an interrogation room. I thought that I was just telling them what happened, what had been told to me. I'm telling it to you. You can arrest this person. I had nothing to do with this. Okay, I'm done. There was a detective, there was one standing, one sitting, and he's writing. So I'm really thinking that he is writing what I am saying to him. And when he gives me the statement and I read it and I go, that's not what happened. And he said, you better fucking sign it. And I said, I'm not signing it because that's not what happened. From that time on, after I refused to sign it, I was slapped, choked, beaten, slammed into that concrete wall, handcuffed, um, called names that I had never been called before. So much so that when I was able to see my mother again, I asked her what a cunt was because I didn't know what that was. I was in that interrogation room for hours without water, nothing to eat. I urinated on myself. Definitely, I said, I'm really not gonna sign this. And the one detective walked out of the interrogation room. And when he came back, he opened the door and my mother was standing there in handcuffs. They went downstairs and got her, handcuffed her and brought her there and said, we're taking your mom to jail for this. You're either gonna fucking sign it or your mom's going to jail. Okay. They literally grabbed my hand and one of them held me by the neck as I signed this statement. Any, any human, any human that has any type of feeling that is scared of death itself would say what they would say what they need to say to stop it from happening. Ronnie, fact of what they what they can make people say when they de deprive you of food, sleep, three days or more with me. Ain't no telling what they're gonna do to me, and they did enough to me because I couldn't walk. I urinate blood. My testicles were swollen to the max. My lip was split. If I gave them another another 17 hours with me, ain't no telling what would happen. So my thing is, I would give them what they want right now. One of the things that I never forget, they took me one time to uh, the torture room and they tortured the person in front of me. I don't know why they did that. In my experience, this is worse than they torture me. Because when your soul is so in pain, your body need to keep up with your soul. Your body need to experience the pain so that there is a balance between your soul and you. I would pull my whole hair, my, including my head, ball, one hair at a time, because I want my body to feel pain. I was six weeks pregnant at the time. I had a doctor's appointment a couple days after that, and they put the, um, the heart monitor on my stomach and they said, we, we don't hear the baby's heartbeat. So they ordered an emergency sonogram. And they saw that the amniotic sac where the baby is was torn. They showed it to me and there was a rip in it. 
the, the doctor asked the, the sonogram technician to leave the room. And she said, this could have only happened to you if you had experienced some trauma. Were you in a car accident? I said, no. Is your partner beating you? And I said, no. You can tell me. Could I really tell you that two white men in the police station? Could I really tell you that? I lost my baby in that interrogation room. That is who I am. That young 19-year-old woman who thought she could go to the police station and say, I'm mad about this crime. Be mad with me. Don't be mad at me. What I want for people to know is that while that remains a fact and is a part of my life that has shaped me, that is not the only thing that makes me who I am. Yeah, um, that's not totally all I am at all. In fact, that's just three years of my life. The, the rest of the uh, 49 years of my life, I have been many different things. I've been son, father, um, husband, yeah, I think there's just so many other parts. You know, I am a daughter, an avid writer. I make I make cupcakes. Um. <laughs> um, I love to play football when I was a kid. I love my dog. I ran around with my dog named Trouble. Kilroy. And everybody in the community knew me in Trouble. He was always a pair. You know, you didn't see one without the other. He could perform as a number of tricks. So I think that would make many people love him. Yeah, we're like camel herders. Muhammadu. And we had camels, cows, and then uh, goats. And how do you call the other goats? Like lambs, you know, we had those, but mainly camels, because my father was a camel herder. And then my mother decided that we need to move to the city against the will of my father. We moved there, but I was too weak and too small to work. So he said, Useless, send him to school. And then I went to school and I fell in love with school. In school, uh, it was not easy. I struggled there a little bit. I had to work really to improve grades. Kilroy again. Uh, I eventually joined the wrestling team, which was a new experience for me. Wrestling helped me realize a sense of discipline, focus, but also time because three minutes on a mat Tussling with another body is a very long time. You don't realize if you're not in condition that you're going to be, you're not going to complete that match. Somebody's going to be to scoop you up and put you on your back. And as sports, yes, I like swing and uh, Mansoor. Like also working with charity, helping. I like I like to do some kind of charity works. Especially uh, when I moved to the city, I found first time I saw there is a lot of. Orphanage uh, place. I used to help a lot, and I love it. Everybody know I go to the skate rink. We go skate every Saturday. Ronnie, skating is my passion. It has been my passion since I was probably like eight years old. To me, skating is like it's like my 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 stress relief. Like people, some people have that uh, comfort food, like ice cream, hot dogs. 
Some people love to drive fast stuff. Some people love to drive, uh, drive horses to jump over hurdles and stuff. Me? Kind of love to get banged up on some skates. <laughs> نعم انا انا لما كنت في المرحله المتوسطه اختارني يعني اختارني like one of the stories when he was in secondary school from each school they would choose few students who have a talent of painting from subri schools he he was the only student who was chosen to participate in the painting center his first painting was he get a little help from his student from his teacher but it was the best painting ever but after he finished school he didn't continue to paint until Guantanamo so this is one of the stories until his childhood uh, my mom used to often observe me uh, getting up early mornings on Saturdays to catch the Cartoon Network Kilroy I would take my pad and my pencil and I would sketch every cartoon that I seen on a pen and a pad from Woody Woodpecker you know uh, Droopy Uh, He-Man, G.I. Joe, you know, I, I sit there hours with my bowl of cereal. And she ran and crossed it and turned the pages and seen how good it was and know that I just had this natural skill and this talent for artistry, you know. I really only can imagine how far I would have went with my natural talent of artistry. I guess being tortured by the Chicago PD, I guess is somewhat would carve out my path to the work I'm doing today and pretty much um, aligning me with people in the field of criminal justice work and social justice work. And I think everything was probably cultivated. If I say that, you know, I am a community activist, I know that it comes from my struggle. If I say that I'm an advocate, I know that I advocate for individuals who don't have the platform that I have. Um, I say, I, you know, I'm, I fight for the underdog. It's because I've been the underdog. So I guess, you know, as, as much as I say that's not the only part to me, it, it does hold a very, very um, broad space in my life. Since my return from Guantanamo, I've been working with an organization called CAGE, which is an advocacy group that campaigns on the various communities that have been affected adversely by the war on terrorism. Um, and uh, as we speak, I uh, lecture regularly at universities, colleges, anywhere that will have me, in fact, um, about these matters. Uh, and I speak to ordinary people uh, as well as leaders um, about the issues that have emanated from the war on terrorism and how that philosophy, or rather the language of the war on terrorism has been adapted by countries like um, China, Burma, India, um, and, and even Israel, uh, that in fact, what we're fighting against is Islam, terrorism, Muslims are by definition terrorists, and that's, that's the, the thing that I learned in Guantanamo and have been trying to fight against since. I eventually turned to a litigator to fight for my freedom uh, and the freedom of many other peers of mine. Uh, the demand in my nearly 30 years of my incarceration inquired for me to litigate for my freedom. And I only can do that through petitioning the court, filing lawsuits and motions. And then I found out that many other guys with similar situations as me 
the, who did not have no idea how the legal system worked. And they knew that I did from going to paralegal school. I had to somehow make time to assist those guys. I'm here. We still here. And we ain't going nowhere. Cause we're gonna keep fighting as long as we can until we get everything they promised us. You know what I'm saying? Cause this is the only way that our truth will come out and people will understand that we didn't do nothing for them to do us like this here. Certain things happened to me, but I will say that the worst thing that ever happened to me created space for me. And I and I use all of those spaces to be all of me. Warm yellows, bright greens, light pinks, and a soft beige compose a city at the end of the day. The yellow glow of sunset draws attention from the empty blue teapot, now cool to the touch. Everyone is gone, but the vessels remain, poised for the next gathering. Three empty teacups remind me of the many empty styrofoam teacups collected by my good friend Chris Arendt. You see, one of his jobs as a military prisoner guard at Guantanamo was to walk up and down the cell blocks and collect the contraband. At the time, the people in prison weren't allowed to have anything in their cells. Nothing. And they weren't allowed to write or draw on anything. I remember Chris said working there was the quickest way to learning how to become a concentration camp guard. I remember he said he never wanted to work the day shift because he always wanted to apologize to them. Anyways, each day, after dinner, the people in prison would be given a styrofoam cup of tea. And these flimsy styrofoam cups would become precious canvases for expression. It was the only place they could make a mark. But as soon as one of them made a mark on the cup, it was considered contraband. And Chris's job was to go confiscate it and bring it to military intelligence for analysis. Chris said it was a ridiculous process. It was as if the military thought one of the people in prison would etch some secret message into the styrofoam and then somehow throw it into the ocean like a message in a bottle and it would somehow get to someone somewhere. Chris said every time he picked up those cups, they would just be covered with flowers, just flowers. Flowers intricately etched into the soft foam with fingernails or pebbles. He loved those cups. Something about the three empty cups reminds me of a sweet story. Sugar at the bottom of empty teacups in Afghanistan. My memory begins with walking through the door, four men sitting cross-legged in front of sewing machines each with long beards, their heads wrapped in cloth. When we arrived, the tailors would hustle to make space to sit around the table together, and they would prepare tea for me and my mom. The tea was in a little glass cup shaped like a tulip on a small glass saucer with a tiny spoon, my favorite part. He would put in nuts, raisins, and little candies in the cup, and then add hot tea and lots of sugar. I would drink it, trying as hard as I could not to swirl it. I wanted to keep the sugar granules at the bottom of the cup, undissolved, 
Then I used the little spoon to scoop up the goodies, a treat of crunchy, soft sweetness. Sitting, sipping tea, offers a time to reflect. The bitter sweetness, the beauty, love, and resistance despite. In the next episode, Maps, Memory, and Violence, we invite you to join us for tea inside one of Khalid Kasim's paintings. With its cool darks and fiery oranges, we will continue to trace connections between local policing and the global war on terror. We will continue to explore the relationship between the way violence locally and internationally is normalized. We will talk about the connections between the struggle for justice and reparations for Chicago torture survivors and the struggle for justice and reparations for Guantanamo survivors. Remaking the Exceptional is produced by Aaron Hughes, Nate Sandberg, and myself, Amber Ginsberg. We'd like to thank Anthony Holmes, Mozambique, Kilroy Watkins, Mohamedou Odslahi, Ronnie Kitchen, Sabri Al-Karashi, Latanya Jennifer Sublet, and Mansoor Adafi for generously sharing their stories with us. Featured cello music was contributed by maestro Kareem Wasfi from his 2019 Poetry Despite, Music Despite, Eternal War Requiem recordings. For more information on these recordings and to listen, visit poetrydespite.online. Additional music, audio editing, and audio design by Nate Sandberg. The Remaking the Exceptional podcast is supported by an Illinois Humanities Envisioning Justice 2021 Humanist Grant. From March 10th, 2022 through August 7th, you can see the artwork described in this episode in the exhibition, Remaking the Exceptional, Tea Torture and Reparations, Chicago to Guantanamo at DePaul Art Museum. Remaking the Exceptional is part of the ongoing Tea Project. For more information and to listen to other episodes, visit t-project.org. Till next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>